Good morning again. So I have three kids. They're over here, being awesome. And uh, my oldest, Charlie, she lost her fourth tooth this week. So it was a week of celebration for her. Yes, uh, it was an exciting week. Uh, but I remember distinctly when Charlie lost her first tooth. You know, she was really excited because some of her friends had lost teeth before, and so it was this, it was this big buildup. And then finally, she got a wiggly tooth, and it was just the most exciting day. And she would wiggle it and wiggle it, and wiggle it, and it was this. Uh, it wasn't one of those teeth that uh, you wiggle for a day or two and it comes out. It was one of those hang on for dear life type of teeth. And so it was wiggle, 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 and just keep wiggling this tooth. And then it started to really bother Charlie. It really started to, to bug her. It actually started to hurt. And I remember a night uh, where she wouldn't go to sleep because her tooth was hurting so much. And just in tears saying, I thought losing a tooth would be so exciting. I didn't realize it would hurt. It reminds me of uh, the idea of growing pains. As, as you grow older, sometimes there's challenges that come along with that, right? We can think of, uh, if, if in your own life growing up, maybe you can think of growing pains. Maybe you think of the story of the superstar basketball player who grew eight inches in a year, or, uh, again, losing a tooth, or maybe just actual growing pains. Or maybe you're a parent and you look at your kids and there every day you look at them and they're changing and there's pain associated with looking at those kids that are aging, you know? There's growing pains. And so today's passage that we're gonna look at in the book of Acts, we see the church growing. And that's great news, growing is good. But there are also growing pains. Growth brings challenges and opportunities. And so that's our big idea this morning. Growth, church growth brings both challenges and opportunities. And so like losing a tooth, there's sometimes a little bit of hurt involved in growing, in maturing. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at a passage that is really foundational in a lot of ways. It kind of is a, a pivot point in the book of Acts, as we'll see as we work through the next couple passages. Uh, but we see some really important things, some really practical things. We see conflict handled uh, by the apostles. We see that church leadership, where we see delegation. Uh, we don't see it stated, but we see a paradigm set for the office of deacons. And so it really is a foundational passage in a lot of ways. And soon in the book of Acts, we're going to see the gospel start to really branch out of Jerusalem and go global. We're also going to be introduced uh, to a few important characters that we'll see come up over the next few chapters in Acts. Uh, characters such as Stephen and Philip and another guy named Timon, which I, want, I looked it up and I really wanted it to be pronounced Timon, like Lion King, but it's Timon. So unfortunately, Timon and Pumbaa are out. But Stephen and Philip, we're going to see those as critical characters uh, moving forward in the book of Acts. And you can take a deep breath, you can kind of relax your shoulders a little bit. It's a lighter passage than we've been running into normally in Acts. Uh, the last few, I mean, we've had Ananias and Sapphira. If you've read that, that's pretty heavy duty, right? We had the apostles being arrested, persecuted. Uh, they wanted, people wanted to kill them. They beat them, right? There's some heavy stuff. And then... Spoiler alert, the next uh, couple passages are working around Stephen. And if you don't know, Stephen is the first martyr in the early church. And so uh, he dies for his faith. So 
There's some heavy passages uh, kind of sandwiching this, but this one's a little bit lighter and very practical, and so we're going to work through it. Uh, it's also a shorter passage, just seven verses. The next one uh, next week is probably going to be like 70 verses, so uh, we'll, we'll just relax, we'll work through it. Uh, but let's dive in. So we're going to be in the book of Acts. If you haven't uh, been with us before, the book of Acts is in the New Testament. Uh, it's in. Uh, it's right after the Gospels, the accounts of Jesus' life and work and ministry. Uh, and so if you're flipping through the Bible, you're about that far through. Okay? And if you flip and you see a couple names that you recognize, like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, it's going to be right after that. And then we're going to be in chapter 6, which is the big number. So if you're seeing big numbers, chapter 6, we're going to be just going through the first uh, seven verses. And so let's keep an eye out for... Uh, growth, and also challenges and opportunities. Let's read God's word. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, Full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint for this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the Word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is God's word. We've seen Luke, the author of Acts, he's the author of the Gospel of Luke and the author of Acts, we've seen him give a number of updates before, through Acts so far. He, he likes to kind of progress reports. Uh, we see specifically that he gives some progress reports that are numerical, right? He gives number updates, and we've gone over this pretty much every week so far, but starts at a group of 120, massive growth after Pentecost, goes up to 3,000. The next report is 5,000 men, so with women and children, we're looking at a lot of people here, and then Acts 5, 15, uh, 14, so it says, and more than ever, uh, believers were added to the Lord in multitudes of both men and women. So more than ever, multitudes, more than ever, more than that 5,000 men. So the church is growing. It is booming. And so Luke brings progress reports consistently through the book of Acts. And here's another one. He says, right off the hop in verse 1, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number. Starts there, and then the end, end of the passage, book ends it with, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly. So what are we seeing here? Well, we're seeing growth. Growth, as you can see by the lovely garden-looking image. Growth. And so what does this mean when we look, consider growth? What, what is Luke's deal? Is he arrogant? Is he bragging about the booming early church? Is this a progress report that's uh, for uh, people donating to the cause that he's trying to kind of up his credibility? No, he's reporting uh, he's a historian. He's reporting what uh, is actually happening. And so he's not bragging. He's, he's giving a progress report. And so it's interesting, and I think we would all be in agreement on that, but it's interesting when we start to connect that into today. 
How do we talk about growth? Is growth the enemy when we talk about growth? Or is growth the goal? What is the, how do we celebrate growth? Or is it wrong to celebrate growth? I'd say there's two camps to this, to kind of just mention that there's churches that are only motivated by growth, and specifically just numerical growth. It doesn't matter how the numbers happen, but growth, growth, growth is the goal, goal, goal. Uh, and others would see growth as selling out, uh, as somehow that when you're pursuing growth, that's the, the worst thing you can do. I would argue that neither of those two camps are good, right? The first, to just have the goal of getting uh, bodies in the door, butts in seats, that is, what's that accomplishing? What are you actually doing with that? Well, you're drawing a crowd, but it's not hard to draw a crowd. Uh, you do something shocking or entertaining enough, and you'll draw a crowd. Right? Look at the movies, right? look at music, Black Friday sales. Right? I live a block away from Rock Sands, right? They draw a crowd. So is drawing a crowd the goal? Is numerical growth a good metric? There's a, a statement that goes, what you win them with, you'll win them too. What you'll win them with, you'll win them too. And so if we are winning people, without the gospel, we are in the entertainment industry. We aren't uh, winning people if they walk away and say, what a service, what a song, what a sermon, what a show. We need people to walk away and say, what a savior. And so that's why we need to point to Jesus in every part of our service. Uh, we don't wow with the performance, we wow with the person. And so... The contrast of that, to assume that tiny automatically equals faithfulness, uh, isn't necessarily true either. Tiny can equal faithfulness, but we're commissioned to make disciples. Now, we don't save anybody. God does the saving, but different churches grow at different rates. But God saves people, and the goal is to make disciples. So to assume that, oh, we are the holiest because we've stayed at 50 people for 50 years, that doesn't necessarily work. We're using the wrong metrics. I hope this is coming across clear, that growth isn't the enemy, but it's also uh, the other side isn't, isn't true either. We need to uh, make sure that we're measuring growth, if we are, by the right metrics. So talking about growth does not equal vanity. HGC may never break 100 people, but if we're faithfully proclaiming the gospel, great. We may see rapid growth, and if we're faithfully proclaiming the gospel, great. So Luke here reports about growth, but there's a really key thing. When we're talking about what metrics we're measuring, Luke reports on real growth. What does he say? He doesn't say, now in these days, uh, their attendance was going up. Right? Or, now in these days, they were really uh, getting a lot of kind of forced decisions. No, he says, now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number. The disciples. That's real growth. Disciples are followers. They're sold out followers. When we look at how Jesus describes being a disciple, to be a follower of him, that's some heavy-duty following, right? And so when Luke's reporting that the disciples were increasing, he's talking about real growth. He's talking about people that hear the gospel uh, and receive the gospel. And so I want that to be the asterisk next to all this. When we're talking about growth, we're talking about real gospel growth. Now, with rapid growth uh, of dedicated followers comes challenges. That's our first point. Growth brings challenges. 
In verse 1, we've already said, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So the Hellenists were bringing a complaint. Now, this complaint here isn't a helpful reminder. It's not a, hey, by the way, right? the word used here for complaint is bitter grumbling. Right? That's, there's resentment there. There's bitter grumbling. And so whether this complaint, I want to be clear, is justified or not, this is not the way to handle problems in or outside the church. Grumbling and complaining doesn't work towards unity. It creates division. Now, it seems to be a legitimate reason, right? There's widows being neglected. The apostles will never deny, and uh, the whole Bible would never deny the care uh, of widows. Right? There's clear commands to take care of widows and orphans. So there's a, legit, a legitimate problem. But they grumble, they complain. And specifically, the division here appears to be cultural. There's cultural tensions. The Hellenists were complaining. The Hellenists were the Greek-speaking Jews. Uh, the others, would have, uh, the Hebrew would have spoken Aramaic and traditionally Hebrew in their, in their gatherings. So there's a language difference, but there's also, uh, we can assume, a cultural difference. Some of them may have uh, been doing their own thing for a long time. And so there's division. There's cultural division, cultural tension. And then this division is amplified by apparent neglect. There's lines that are drawn in the sand. There's one group complaining about another group, and there's maybe one group neglecting the other group. So there's lines drawn in the sand. There's cultural tensions. Now, I know we all could agree. We don't have to look far or turn on the news for too long to see that the cultural and ethnic divisions can creep into our lives and drive hate and division. But the mystery of the gospel says the opposite, that these lines in the sand, uh, they need to be wiped away. Paul writes that the, the dividing wall of hostility needs to be broken down because of the gospel. So we are sinful people, and we are pretty good at redrawing those lines in the sand. But there is no way that we could read the Bible and see that this division is okay. Either the neglect or the complaining, but even just the fact that there's a line drawn on the cultural tension line. And so growth has brought challenges. We see growth, but we see conflict. We see cultural divisions. And we see that a growing church requires wisdom. Growth requires wisdom. And so the apostles know that they need to act to maintain unity. Maintaining unity. There's tension. They know that the church needs to be united. Uh, they know that there are legitimate needs. But they also know that there's just a few men leading thousands and thousands and thousands of people. So the first thing they need to do to maintain this unity is to consider their leadership priorities. Consider their leadership priorities. Verse 2 says, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now this can be a sticky verse, depending how you read it. Right? Does this mean that the apostles didn't care about the widows? Does this mean that the apostles were too good to do it? Or they, they thought they were too good? That it was somehow below them? No, obviously not. It's rhetorical. But no. The apostles were characterized by serving. These guys dedicated their entire lives to the gospel going out. 
most of them even eventually gave their lives uh, for the cause of the gospel. And we saw before, in the verse right before this one, verse 40, uh, 542, and every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. So these guys were working. They were serving. So it wasn't that serving was somehow below them. But they knew that they've got a huge church. They are 12 men, and they have been given a specific task. They can't do everything. They cannot do everything. And if they were doing everything, they certainly couldn't do the main thing, which for them was their uh, specific call to pray and to preach. A friend of mine, Daryl Dash, is a church planter in Toronto, uh, in Liberty Village. Uh, and he said this quote one time. Uh, he's a mentor and friend. He said this, Nothing is below me. I will do anything, but I don't have to do everything. So he's talking about, even in a church planting context, Nothing is below me. I will do anything, but I don't have to do everything. And so we need to read uh, that this line by the Apostles, verse 2, through that lens. But the Apostles are saying, we've been given a huge job. And we can't give up that job to do this right now. Now, we could get into trouble there too if they just brush their shoulders off and say, we cannot be bothered and walk away. That's not what they're saying. And this isn't where the story ends. And we see the apostles uh, take this criticism. And they're not too proud. They take the criticism, they take the complaint, the grumblings, or whether it was handled well or not, and they work towards a solution. And this is encouraging that even uh, the earliest church, the one that in a sense serves as a model church, that maybe the model church, had challenges, right? There was grumbling and complaining within. Maybe there was even neglect from the apostles, right? No one could complain uh, about the quality of the teaching there, right? Oh, what church do you go to? Oh, the Acts one. Oh, yeah, I heard that's it's really been taken on. Like, oh, do they preach the Bible? Oh, yeah, they write the Bible. Like, they're there. Right? They got a little, who's your pastor? Oh, Peter. Right? They've got some serious uh, firing power there. Right? So it's not that these guys are perfect. But they serve as a model church, but we see that they still have challenges. They still uh, make mistakes. They still take criticism. Uh, and whether they were approached well or not, they acknowledge the fact that there's legitimate needs. And so what do they do? They manage the legitimate needs. They say, therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. So they're not saying this isn't a problem. They're saying we just need help. We need someone else to do this. We need to be devoted to prayer and the ministry of the word. Right? So to manage this need, this legitimate need, they need to delegate some work to the church. And so uh, growth brings challenges. Growth requires wisdom. And our next point is growth demands contribution. Growth demands contribution. We see this contribution first in the, the work of the church. Right? The apostles say, first of all, church, you need to contribute to this by finding the men to do the work. The apostles don't say, oh, I got a guy. Oh, he's the widow caretaker guy. You know? Or, oh, we'll do it. Or, oh, that other guy that didn't quite make the cut when Matthias became the 12th apostle, maybe he could be the widow guy. They don't find the person. They say to the church. They give them some 
a bit of a framework, but they say, go and find these men to do the work. Right? They say, go find a few good men. And so, so we, we see submission by the church, but we also see contribution by the church. This isn't just uh, apostolic authority commanding them. They, the people, the church submits to the instruction, and they say, all right, but they also contribute significantly by finding the people. So this is an idea when we think about um, a congregation, congregationalism, congregation working together. The church has a voice. The church has authority. The church makes decisions. And so next we see not just the work by the church, but specifically the workers. And so we see contribution by the workers themselves. Seven men are selected that meet the standard laid out by the apostles. The church digs around and finds seven men. It's interesting that these seven men, we don't know for sure that they all fell into the Hellenist camp, but they all have Greek names. And so it's interesting to think whether it was the apostles doing some of this thinking or the church saying, there's a specific need for specific people. Uh, let's be smart about who we pick to do this, right? They're not just going to be more of, again, the apostles' buddies doing it. And so this passage is often cited as the beginning of the office of a deacon in the church often cited as the beginning. Now, uh, there's two offices, specifically in church leadership, that we see in the Bible. We see elders, uh, who are men who oversee the spiritual needs of the church. They teach and they govern. And the only specific uh, requirement or uh, biblical guideline for elders that is different than really a Christian in general uh, is the ability to teach and to teach the Word of God. Then we also see deacons, who are men and women who oversee and give leadership to the practical ministries of the church. So we put this together through the whole New Testament. We don't see it uh, specifically right here in Acts. Uh, these guys aren't called deacons. Uh, deacon means servant. And so that exact title, that exact office isn't used in this passage. Uh, but the verb to serve, same as deacon, that uh, is in this passage. Now... That doesn't mean that these guys are officially deacons just because there's a verb to serve. Uh, the apostles have that same uh, word in their devotion to prayer, prayer and the ministry of the word. But just because they're not called deacons doesn't mean we can't learn a lot about deacon ministry and the work that deacons do from this passage. Uh, this is it's setting a paradigm for deacon ministry. Right, these guys, they were appointed to care for the physical needs of the church. They are there to, to actually solve problems, actual problems, the physical problems. Uh, the second thing that they do is they work towards unity. We already talked about unity being the issue here. Uh, and what do deacons do? They bind the church back together through loving service. And then the third thing is they actually help with the ministry of the word. They free the leaders to lead. So they take care of the practical things. Uh, they bind the church together in unity, and they help with the ministry of the word by freeing the leaders to do that. And so these are all very applicable when we consider the office of a deacon uh, in Heritage Grace Church today, or any church right now. Without contributors, uh, churches fall apart. You end up with grumpy, underserved members, and you end up with burnt out pastors and elders. Contribution is key. Now, do we see a prescription here for deacons? 
No. But do we see a paradigm set for a hugely important role that takes care of the practical things, that takes care uh, and guards the unity of the church, and also frees the elders and pastors to do what they do? I think we do see a paradigm set there, but we can't draw perfect parallels. Pastors and elders are not apostles. I would never make that claim. So we cannot see this passage as purely prescriptive, but it does teach us a lot about the role of a deacon. It's similar to Moses and Jethro in Exodus 18. Uh, certainly not a blueprint, but a very helpful principle. So Exodus 18, uh, verses 17 through 23. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Everybody was coming to Moses. Everyone was coming to Moses. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws, and make them known, uh, and make them known the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times, every great matter that they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you, you will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace. So again, not a prescription, but a helpful blueprint of a similar idea, right? A few people can't do it all. So we see consistently this idea of contribution from the church, by the church, for the church. And so this looks a lot of different ways, even practically, right? There's no uh, different levels, right? We need people to clean the bathrooms. We need people to set up chairs. We need people to lead us in music. We need people to preach. We need people to multitask a hundred different things in the tech right? We need a lot of people to do different things. And so we are a church, uh, and, and in that we are contributors. Contribution needs to characterize what it means to be a member of this or any church. And finally, we see through the growth and the challenges, uh, through the growth, the challenges and opportunities uh, that gospel-driven growth, growth brings fruit. Gospel-driven growth brings fruit. So again, we talked about the right me metrics, measuring on the right metrics. So what is the fruit here? Well, it says in verse 7, the word of God continued to increase in the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. That's the right metric. Sinners saved, lost, being found. This church produces the right kind of fruit. This is growth worth celebrating. This is growth worth measuring. It's also really interesting to see how verse 7 ends. It says, And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Acts uh, 4, 1 and 2 says this. And they were speaking to the people and the priests and the captain of the temple 
and Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day. So the priests don't seem like the most fertile evangelistic ground. Right? Amazingly, though, we get a report that some, or even many, become obedient to the faith. Many of them are saved. And so this is a big point that we can emphasize here. Be encouraged. Maybe you know people that are hostile to the gospel. Maybe you know people that you'd almost imagine are unreachable. Right? These priests, would, I can't imagine much more unreachable people. Right? They were literally just arresting, beating these guys up, uh, had a role to play in killing Jesus. They, there's a lot uh, of animosity there. Right? You consider these guys unreachable. But they're not. And so maybe you're sitting there and you are that person. And the good news is that the gospel is for all. And that means uh, me, that means you. Jesus traded his righteousness in exchange for your wrongs. He is in the business of saving so I'd love to talk more about that with you. If that's you, if you're sitting there and you're thinking, I don't know what you're all about. I don't know what this good news that you're talking about is. I'd love to talk to you. If you want to come disagree with me, come disagree with me too. But the gospel saves the unreachable. That's good news. Right? Because we can't, we can't convince anyone to do anything. But Jesus saves you're among friends, I could point you to many in this room who have had their lives changed by the gospel, who many would consider unreachable. But the gospel is the power for salvation. So the evidence is here in this room right now, and same with uh, what Luke reports. The evidence is here. Uh, they're multiplying disciples, even disciples that you would consider unreachable. And so in conclusion, growth can hurt Right? We can have growing pains. Wiggly teeth hurt sometimes. And I'm sure we all can attest to times in our lives where we faced growing pains. So if you are a Christian, you've been part of a growing church before. Uh, for any length of time, you know that the same is true for churches, that there can be growing pains, right? Even the model church we see. And so no matter what rate HGC grows at, we can expect to face challenges. Right? We're walking into, it's, it is in one sense the unknown, but it's also the known. We know that, that challenges are coming. And so we need wisdom to manage that growth. Wisdom on many levels. Wisdom from the leaders. Uh, wisdom, that's one of the criteria they lay out for the seven. And then wisdom by the congregation to actually select the seven. So we need wisdom to manage any growth we see. And we collectively need to contribute to the many needs that there are in the church. To both carry the weight and to also free others uh, to do what they're gifted in, to do what they're called to do. In Act 6, we see glimmers of each of our church's values, Heritage Grace Church. We are gospel-driven. We see gospel-driven preaching. We see gospel-driven fruit in the passage. We are relational. We see relationships, even the messy bits. We see conflict. We see challenges. We are contributors. I don't think I have to say any more on that. 
We see that in the passage, that, that the church works together to contribute to the needs of the church. And then finally, we are multipliers. We desire to be a church that multiplies uh, at its core, multiplies disciples. And that's what we see uh, the early church doing. And Lord willing, we can be faithful to these values. With all of that, we can celebrate growth. We can celebrate fruit. We can celebrate being a fruitful church. Because what does that mean? I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean a bigger fan base. It doesn't mean that that's evidence that we are a cool or a hip church. It doesn't mean that there's honestly anything in it for us. But it does mean that if we grow, people are coming to the saving knowledge of Jesus dying for them. That lost people are found. It means that sinners like you and I have been saved by truly amazing grace. Not by following the rules, not by simply showing up, but by repenting of a lifetime of rebellion against God. Turning from sin and dedicating our lives to something bigger than ourselves. And so I pray that this is true for you. It's the gospel that saves us. It is the gospel that drives us. It is the gospel that unites us. It is the gospel that motivates us. It is the gospel that drives the church. We are a group of sinners saved by grace with a message that breaks down cultural walls, solves conflict, and unites. And it motivates the same group of sinners saved by grace, Heritage Grace Church, to share that news with the world, to make disciples, and to grow, not for our glory, but for God's glory alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how practical it can really be and the truth that we see in it. Father, I pray that uh, you would work in the hearts of each of us, that you would edit in anything we need to know about this and edit out anything that is not from you. Father, I pray that your will would be done, and if it is your will, that we would grow, but not to grow for any metric other than to see more people repent and believe and come to a saving knowledge of you. So we know that growth is not the enemy. We know that growth will bring challenges. We know that growth requires wisdom. That growth demands contribution. But we trust you and know that growth brings fruit. So we hand it all over to you. We hand this church over to you. And this morning over to you. We thank you for your grace. We love you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.